Hi, this is Will Morris with another Health Amplified, a Cleveland Clinic podcast. And with us, as always, is uh, my co-host, Akil Sekleta, Managing Partner of Cleveland Clinic Ventures. Today, we have a special treat. We have Dr. Robert Wiley, who is the Chief of Medical Operations of Cleveland Clinic, a very, very interesting role at the cornerstone of business intelligence and analytics, pharmacy, continuous improvement, hospital throughput, surgical operations, and critical care transport. Under his stewardship, he is also responsible for Ohio's state response for the COVID pandemic. And so it's an absolute pleasure to have you, Dr. Wiley. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Will. So I, I think it's important to kind of um, explain to the audience, you know, as the chief of medical operations and focusing on managing, you know, a very, very complex system, all of a sudden the pandemic hits. And, you know, what is the role of a hospital system or someone in your role in informing and guiding the legislation and, and the governor um, of, of the state of Ohio? So it really starts with uh, Incident Command, which is our emergency operations center at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, that has been running for several years. It started, uh, one of the last big things was Ebola in terms of an outbreak we were significantly worried about. As you remember, we had somebody who uh, went to Akron uh, looked at a bridal dress and then went back down south. And mm -hmm. so we were very concerned immediately with the Ebola outbreak about what it might mean to Ohio. And so with that, we stood up a freestanding Ebola unit within three weeks that we built, including we trained over 600 people in the proper use of personal protective equipment and uh, as well developed a transport capability, not only ground, but helicopter and even air transport. Uh, which, which, which we got asked to use by the federal government during that time. So we respond to all kinds of emergencies. So Ebola, uh, the coronavirus infection, but also gas leaks, uh, loss of electricity. So anything that happens on an emergency basis that must be managed comes through the Incident Command Center. So, so that really started, was, was, was where we started. And, and and I imagine no good deed goes unpunished. You know, we're, we're, you know, you're a leader in that space. And then obviously a global pandemic hits. How, how does that actually work? Did the uh, governor DeWine reach out and say, we need help. We need the input of those who are, you know, administrating hospitals to help guide us or, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about that orchestration and, and where has it evolved in the past nine months? So it, it, uh, it evolved very rapidly on March 9th of last year was the first Ebola patient. I know it seems like several years ago, but it was just uh, March of last year. By March 12th, the governor closed the schools. Three days later, he closed the bars and restaurants. And by March the 23rd, he had issued a stay-at-home order. And the other thing he did was he told all hospitals to stand down any unnecessary medical care. And really the point of that was to preserve personal protective equipment because we knew we were gonna be short. China produced a lot of the PPE that was going to be available over half around the world. We got major supplies and shipments from China. So we recognized actually way back in January when we began to hear, hear rumbles of a pandemic in Wuhan, China, that maybe we had to look at expiring product and maybe we should keep it instead of sending it back. So that actually started in January in terms of ramping up our capabilities because we looked at a virus, uh, many scary pictures coming out from China, and we were pretty convinced it wasn't going to stay in China or in Asia with uh, world travel being what it is. 
So, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, when, when this first started, you know, as you described, you're, you're, you're getting a handle on, uh, on things. We, we're starting to see the, uh, the, the early signs of, of the disease in China. We're starting to see preparation here. Um, and you're, and you've, you've got the incident command center here. So can you walk us through a little bit as to how you started thinking uh, that, first of all, this may be different than Ebola, which was, say, limited number of cases versus a pandemic with, with potential for huge spikes. So the, so the way you're thinking and approaching this would be probably very different. Can you walk us through a little bit as to how you were thinking of setting up the, the uh, command center and then, um, I think, interacting with internal operations and then externally uh, to the community and state? So we'll do, Akil. So we kind of set up the background of the, of the timing of the events with the governor. So as soon as the first case hit Ohio, March 9th, we activated incident command. Dr. Morris was part of that group that uh, got activated. And we really looked at doing three things. One was increasing our immediate capacity. Mm. And we try to get a handle on, well, what does that mean? How much capacity do we, do we actually need? So we have 2,500 to 3,000 beds in Ohio. How many were we gonna need for, for our part of the market in the 21 county area? So we took the University of Pennsylvania, developed a model, and we ran the model assuming about a 3% admission rate, and it showed some scary numbers. It showed that if nothing changed, we were gonna have to be able to handle at one time up to 8,000 patients with under 3,000 beds. So the first job was, okay, increasing capacity of the hospitals. The second one I mentioned, which was increasing personal protective equipment. And the other one was going to be, how do we coordinate with the state and what does that look like? So the first part of it, uh, we, we started looking at all our PPE. We put up PPE dashboards and business intelligence so we knew how many days supply we had for every PPE, different type of thing from masks to gloves to gowns, et cetera, small masks, large masks, N95s, regular surgical masks, the whole gambit, including medications that we might need. And as time went on, we had dexamethasone and remdesivir to that, and then Regeneron and bamlanivimab in terms of the monoclonal antibodies. And those have been added to the list more recently. So keep the list, order, develop the, 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 uh, the amount of PPE that you need. We're looking at greater than 90 days. And then we look at the burn rate. Okay, if you've got 8,000 patients, boy, you're going to go through a lot of PPE. Yeah. But we really expanded very rapidly in terms of looking at what our capabilities would be. We did find uh, something which we could tweak in the University of Pennsylvania model, though, uh, that looked like 8,000 was probably going to be, and this was open source, but that 8,000 was going to be an overestimation of what we actually really needed. And it began to round into a number more like 2,500. Well, 2,500 is almost every bed that we have in Northeast Ohio. That's still way too many for the other emergencies that we have to handle. So as we looked at what the governor did, he called us down, a small group of us down to Columbus to meet with him. No mass, no spacing. We didn't know about that at the time. And he suggested, how should we manage this? And what we actually suggested from the Cleveland Clinic point of view is we, we take the eight emergency regions, which seemed awfully, which seemed too big and too awkward to manage, and just divide it into three zones. Mm. It's more represented the healthcare delivery system. So a northern zone, which included anywhere from Toledo, Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, Canton, and then you have the mid Ohio centered on Columbus, and then you've got southern Ohio zone three centered on Cincinnati. 
And the National Guard, General Harris, agreed with us that that made a lot more sense in terms of his delivering product and supplies, as well as potentially people, if he was only trying to manage to three zones. So that got set up, and I was assigned the zone leader, Region 1, which is of Ohio's 11.7 million people, it is over 5 million. So that's by far the dominant zone. And then the job within the zone became, well, there are some things which are not very well connected traditionally. So local departments of health are not connected actually with local hospitals or local health care providers or the congregate facilities. So what do we mean by congregate facilities? Ohio is a relatively old state, not in terms of when it was founded, but in terms of its population. Uh, in fact, we're the uh, oldest, largest state. The other ones are quite small in front of us, like Delaware. So we have an aging population, which is, which is older than average. And we have more people in extended care facilities. Ohio has about 900, in excess of 900, private extended care facilities, housing about 50, 60, 70,000 people. The state also houses people. Now, part of these are prisoners, but part of those are veterans and people with developmental disabilities and uh, you know, disadvantaged youth and other things in homes. So it's not all prisoners, it's quite a big mixture, but they have about 50,000 people. And these people in the extended care facilities, whether it's state-run or privately run, really don't have any way of getting away from each other. And the threat really is the people who work in these homes and come in and out or in these facilities, if the government facilities, and they work at several. So there was a potential th a threat of spread there. So what we did was we cataloged every privately owned nursing home in zone one, over, over 400. We put the number of residents in, we put all the employees in, we looked it up with the local county department of health and with the local hospital. And we made that triad in terms of healthcare delivery. The other thing we realized that if we were gonna have outbreaks, and it turns out that we did, how do we balance load the system? So what happened early on was Elton Federal Penitentiary in Columbiana County on the far eastern edge of the state of Ohio had an outbreak. It's still one of the largest outbreaks, over 1,200 prisoners and employees. Quickly crashed the East Liverpool and the Salem hospitals, which are very small hospitals with a handful of ICU beds. So what we did was immediately was set up a cascading system and told them not to worry. You start to get overwhelmed, we're gonna to transfer to Akron. Akron starts to get overwhelmed, we're gonna to transfer to Cleveland. And it's that balance load, which was the other part of it. So how do we balance load across zone one and even between zone one, two, and three, although we've not had to do that very often. So it's balance load and get rid of the nervousness about hospitals afraid that they were gonna get overwhelmed like pictures that we saw in China, but also pictures we saw in Italy. We actually talked, uh, spoke over the phone three weeks into the pandemic in Italy when they were, when the hospitals were overwhelmed, we talked with the director of the busiest hospital there. And he gave us some good advice. He said, if you're thinking two or three days ahead, you're three weeks behind. Wow. The virus is gonna move that quickly. And we took that advice to heart. We started thinking several weeks out, not just managing the next 72 hours, but what's going to happen in the next two or three weeks that we need to be on now while somebody's trying to manage, you know, the immediate, uh, the immediate threat. So those were kind of some of our initial thoughts about how to manage this. If you, I, I don't imagine you even have a moment to pause and reflect, but hypothetically, if you did, 
What are the lessons learned out of this that you think, gosh, from a uh, analytic standpoint, from an awareness standpoint, from a care coordination standpoint, you know, we have a riches of of resources, but yet, you know, they don't talk to each other. Are there innovations or just ideas that you think could surface and and whether it be for the next pandemic or or disaster or things that actually might help facilitate better care? Um, you know, I'm just curious, any of those thoughts? So probably the most exciting thing we've done is uh, set up a geospatial analytic system with university hospitals, and we've just drawn Metro into it, and we use combined data. So what this is allows us to do, and let's just use COVID as an example, since that's the top of mind currently. So we can detect clusters and we can detect microclusters. That's a couple people within 100 meters of each other. And we detect positive tests, not, not in a zip code, but to actual address locations. We can put Google Maps on top of that. So we can show the local county departments of health where people are being infected and where clusters are starting to develop so they can put appropriate resources there in order to manage. So give people masks, tell them about hand washing, give them gloves as necessary, gowns if necessary, and moving into the vaccine stage, let's vaccinate everybody around those. And this turns out to be high, high density housing areas. We can also put the social deprivation index over that to show where people are most vulnerable. And we've done all this. And I'm delighted to report within the last week, we use, we use the Ohio Hospital Association with all our agreements, legal agreements to share data. Now this is statewide. We're the first state in the United States which will have a geospatial analytic capability. So we're doing it for COVID and that's gonna be very useful. We're wrapping in vaccines now on top of that, so we can look at the map of vaccines and the map of who's been identified as a patient and is infected, and then everybody else living in that area. But what about infant mortality after we're over COVID? Yeah. And maybe uh, with uh, drug abuse, what about new drugs coming in which are more lethal, like we've seen in the last couple of years, than other drugs? We can detect fatalities as well as overdoses, and we can start to intervene in these areas. So, yeah, I mean it's it reminds me of kind of the reaction of the one pediatrician in Flint who, you know, basically was the whistleblower of 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 uh, of of the lead poisoning and the water switch. But I can imagine, you know, with this data at such a granular but a but a aggregate level, you could start understanding, you know, tremendous health disparities, inequity, or other public health issues. Yeah, I think we're we're very excited about it. The governor's very excited about it. We've shown the governor, uh, and uh, in terms of the capabilities, and we're using it. So we pulled in Ohio State's, which has a great analytics partner. We pulled in the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati as well, and uh, we're pulling in all the resources for everybody to use this in a transparent uh, way on an open platform, essentially. Yeah. So we can all look at the data, and we can we can help each other. You know, the, the, the condor on data, though, is important. I think the the concern or issue is, is it's really only as good as the data going in, and it's only as good as the data sharing agreements between institutions. And, and going back to a comment you made earlier around uh, the fact that when this first came out, a lot of the, the local county health departments weren't really in sync with each other. They weren't in sync with the hospitals or the primary care doctors. And so when you think about that and you think about that, that communication gap, um, how has that, that evolved or, or has it evolved? Uh, you know, so 
will we be in a situation like this in the future or are there systems now in place that you think will carry on and, and maybe give us more insight and prevention around that? Yeah, I think with the triad that we've formed now, so you've got congregate facilities with the local hospitals, with the county health departments, I think we see that holding and being sustained. We also have calls, um, and uh, we just changed it. We, we had calls three times a week uh, for all the hospitals in zone one to report out. So it was not only um, how many COVID patients they have, it's their percentage of positivity, their PPE needs, uh, where do they need PPE, uh, as well as the uh, local departments of health to rope them in to make sure everybody's on the same page. So in the state of Ohio, the departments of health are actually appointed by the in each individual county. And they have a dotted line to the state department of health. So the state department of health has oversight, but no, you know, it's really no hiring or firing capability. So they can suggest direction. Uh, so we've tried to put that together in a stronger framework so to make sure everybody's on the same page, because to your point, it's all about communication at that level. We had to know and we had to figure out, because typically we had the, the Department of Health in Cuyahoga County with Terry Allen, who's been head of it and I've known for quite some time, but they did their bit of work and as hospitals, we did our bit of work. We also had to pull together the hospital systems in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County and work with the uh, County Commissioner Armand Budish. And, uh, and work with Terry Allen in terms of the, the Cuyahoga County Department of Health as well as the city's Department of Health. And so pulling those people together to make sure everybody was on the same page. So we put together CEO calls and I talk with uh, my counterparts at uh, Metro and, and at University in St. Vincent's at least three times a week, if not daily about, and we set up common testing platforms and we also set up SWAT teams. So university set up a SWAT team to test. So if, a, if there's a nursing home outbreak, they could swab everybody in the nursing home. We set up a SWAT team, Metro set up a SWAT team to make sure we could cover the county and that our citizens were relatively protected. Now that we're vaccinating, we're all vaccinating as well. And that the control of the vaccine is really at the state level and from there, the federal level. And there have been many issues with that, which we can discuss if you like. Well, uh, yeah, we, we won't touch the federal level. Uh, we don't have a three hour podcast, but um, I'm curious also, um, you know, the degree of, you know, what's amazing is how we can all come together, uh, regardless of what color badge you wear and what role and, and, and really kind of knock it out of the park in terms of, you know, service of, of, of a crisis. Um, out of this, you you also are over our pharmacy um, in drug shortages and in, 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 in drug pricing cost transparency is, is always a, an issue. Do you see a degree of kind of statewide or even federal wide, you know, uh, collaborations in which either the manufacturing of 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 limited, you know, cheaper cheaper versions of generics or you know um, a, a group purchase organization? How well do you think these collaborations will yield other benefits? I think moving uh, moving forward, there are certainly collaborations that healthcare providers can do on the back end not necessarily the direct patient interaction end. So uh, to some extent, pharmacy, laboratory services, uh, you could imagine a number of other things to make healthcare delivery more efficient across different providers. Uh, now, what that's gonna look like in the, in the future, I'm not sure. Obviously the clinic just added its 12th hospital in Northeast Ohio. 
Mercy Canton into the fold. The bigger we get, the more efficient we get in terms of spreading the back end costs, and we get more patients to to uh, you know to serve in a, in our local area, and and we can come, become more efficient over time. But where the healthcare industry is going to uh, end up, I think it's a it's a little premature to know right now. Yeah. So you know, we we just touched on the vaccine briefly, but I I, I do want to kind of click on that, and you know, we knew the vaccine is coming at some point, right? So we, and we knew that there would be challenges in on the supply chain and and the distribution. What are the the steps that we took at the Cleveland Clinic and that you took at the incident uh, command center to prepare and, and handle the, the logistical issues that we knew would be coming up? And not just the supply from the federal side, but our, the part that we can control. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a thing called CORT, which is the Operation uh, Coronavirus Operations and Recovery Task Force that we transition incident command. So incident command is a relatively short standup. Typically, in terms of days, we ran day after day for several months, seven days a week. Will was in on all those meetings, Saturdays, Sundays, uh, a lot of time. But eventually, we had to change it over into a regular operating system, system of operations. So that got done. In terms of the vaccine, so we began to think about vaccines um, early last fall. And then we learned about the Pfizer and we learned about the cold storage and, and, uh, and the temperatures required. Uh, we looked at the Moderna as well. So we began to look at our freezer capabilities. And so we, um, we have a freezer farm built just for coronavirus. And we can actually store within the Cleveland Clinic uh, main campus, several hundred thousand doses of vaccine wow. at minus, uh, you know, at minus 70 or at minus 20 degrees centigrade. So either one. So we've got, we have offered to help the state store the vaccine if they're getting overwhelmed. We volunteered to be a distribution center for the entire northern part of the state. We could probably take on um, almost the whole state with our capabilities. Uh, so we, we looked at that proactively. A guy named Jeff Rosner uh, from Pharmacy and Supply Chain was working with uh, our operations group in terms of providing all the freezers. We also did the same thing. We roped in Florida. And mm -hmm. so there are these same free, uh, freezer capacities at Indian River Martin is obviously at Weston. So we began to think of that early um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of what we would need for just to store the vaccine. And we began to think of where we were gonna give the vaccine and how we were gonna give the vaccine. So as you know, the federal government um, and, and adopted by the state said, well, we're, the people most at risk are the eldest. And it's true, if you look at people over the age of 65 in the state of Ohio, there are 2.2 million people, about 20, you know, about 20% of the population but it's about uh, it's about 87% of the fatalities from COVID in the state of Ohio is in that age group. And if you looked at those who live in extended care, it's only about 7% of those infected, but it's 40% of the fatalities in the state of Ohio. So the idea at first was, okay, let's get the people in extended care facilities, let's get them injected with a vaccine first, and that happened. And then let's take the oldest, and the governor had a plan where he went down from 80 to 75, 70 to 65 at weekly intervals and gradually ramping up to those 2.2 million people that I talked about. 
we were a little concerned about healthcare inequities and just saying it's open to everybody over a certain age. Yep. We were also worried about the perception of our patients just trying to get in and calling and calling like we've heard. So we've told our patients, don't call us, we'll call you. So we started with the most vulnerable and then we started just going down and adding more and more patients in to match our vaccine supply capabilities. And in doing that, we actually looked last Friday, and I just presented this data uh, yesterday to the, to the governor's office about health inequities. Mm. So in terms of the African-American population um, and who we take care of above the age of 80, um, they get relatively more vaccine than any other specific group. So that just shows you by us reaching out, by us being proactive to everybody. And so we, we, uh, we use my chart up there on my chart. We activated nearly 100,000 people in my chart in January, this January alone to tell you how far we've come. We text message them if they've got a phone which will handle that, but if not, we call them. Yeah. And we offer them vaccine. And if they don't have a ride, we give them a ride. And so with that, that's, I think that's the type of health equity that the, that the state really wants, that the governor has put out there. But I think you have to do it in a certain way if you're actually going to achieve that goal. So we've been able to achieve it. I'm very proud of how the, how the Cleveland Clinic has done it. Yeah, I was seeing some of the, uh, you know, the, the messaging, I think, is, is has been really, really, really profound in ensuring that we have kind of a multiple channels of, of, of getting access, that it's not just electronic, good old phone and, and you know, actually leveraging other community sites like pharmacies, I think, is 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 absolutely uh, ingenious and, and strategic. Um, I guess the last kind of you know word, uh, you know, for you, you, you wear you know many hats. Uh, one of it is obviously surgical operations, and you know the the other world that of patients who perhaps are deferring care and you know avoiding going to the health system for a myriad of reasons. I'm curious. You know, what are your observations around that and how, how do we ensure that patients who are nervous about achieving the care they need? I'm curious, you know, from your colleagues in, in other health institutions, I'm sure that's a common refrain. And what do you think the state's role of, of is to kind of create that, you know, that is so important that we don't defer care for cancer screening, health maintenance, blood pressure, diabetes care, because these are also the other pandemics. You know, how are you wrestling the messaging on, yes, COVID is important, new variant, vaccines coming, but we also have this entire other piece. So first of all, I should mention surgical operations is being run by Mark Taylor. Um, and uh, Mark was in medical operations and now he's reporting directly to uh, Don Malone as the president of the main hospital and regional hospitals. And he's doing a great job doing it. But you're correct in terms of, so the first thing we did way back in March in terms of deferring all non-emergent medical care was, and that again was because of PPE. And we had our peak about April 22nd. Then we began to relax a little bit and let people come back in. We had another peak 90 days later, July 22nd. Both of these peaks were about 1,100. Our third peak in terms of number hospitalized was on December 15th, that was 5,300. To give you, you know, we went from 1,100 to 53, and uh, today we're sitting about uh, 25, just over 2,500 as of this morning. So well above the other two peaks. So at first, people, because we were deferring surgery, um, the messaging uh, was in, in terms of the, what was messaged by the governors and the various hospitals and what we were doing. 
I think people got nervous and then they got nervous about COVID as they saw the news and then they thought, well, the hospitals might be a dangerous place. Yeah. So what we've tried to message and, and, and uh, Will and Akhil, you're both, you're both very familiar with this, is the hospital is, is one of the safest places in terms of COVID exposure because everybody around in the hospitals is wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. And so because we're all masked, transmission within a hospital, it's not zero, but it's very unusual. And in fact, when we see it, it's almost always within a break room where people are eating and they've got their masks down. So we have had some transmission, it's been very unusual, but in general, the hospital is significantly safer than the community. In fact, we were able to prove that by looking at where hospital workers got COVID. They mm -hmm. didn't, for the most part, they didn't get it at work. The vast majority, over 90%, got it in their community at the same rate as the uh, as the people that they lived adjacent to in, in wherever they lived. So with that, we've tried to message now, particularly since we saw decreased people coming to emergency rooms for strokes and for heart attacks, that we've tried to message them, know if you're sick, come in and get seen because we can intervene, intervene early. And what we did was we saw people not only in Ohio, but around the nation starting to come in late after they'd heart, had a heart attack, significant cardiac failure, no chance for revascularization. The same thing with stroke. If you had a clot, no chance to revascularize and they had permanent deficits. Yeah. So trying to message them, don't wait for these type of symptoms, particularly come in. And the same is true for cancer and cancer follow-up in terms of screening. You know, if you've had a, if you've had a bad polyp, you need to be screened and putting it off puts you at risk. But certainly around the United States, and you're familiar with this, there have been excess deaths beyond that simply attributed to COVID infections. So, so, so there's the COVID excess, and above that is people who didn't receive their normal health care or the emergency health care they needed, and they stayed home. And we've seen excess deaths in that category around the United States. Fortunately, it's been relatively low in Ohio, but it's not zero. Well, I think those are uh, somber but important points to kind of end our, our, our podcast on, um, because at the end of the day, you know, it's not just us getting through this crisis, and we will, um, and certainly attributed to your leadership and your team's leadership, um, absolutely impressive. But also the messaging um, that this is this is a continuous marathon and in, in health inequities, health disparities, and in creating affordable accessible healthcare is is a continuous uh, is continuous work that that never ends um, so on my behalf uh, dr seklecha dr wiley thank you so much for joining health amplified a cleveland clinic podcast well thank you both it was a pleasure